So I grew up poor. Not poor, poor per se, but we, we had clothing and food and shelter, but we definitely ate better on the first and 15th of the month. My dad had left our family for someone else, multiple others, and so my mom raised the three girls on shift work, doing per diem, per diem nursing. And <clears throat> I hated my house growing up. It was small and dark and cluttered and not, ma not maintained. We had plastic lamps and a rusty swing set that didn't even swing in our very tiny backyard. And I didn't want anyone ever to drop me off, much less come over to my house. So <laughs> in high school, I, I thought we didn't have that much money for clothing, so I decided to make my own shorts. And I didn't know how to sew, but I thought, oh, I'm, I'm smart, I can figure this out. So I took some material and I took some thread and I tried to make these shorts. And I wore them to school in a, in a fit of enthusiasm about this new talent that I did not have. And I was walking down the alley of my San Diego high school, and the, the waistband hadn't worked. I hadn't done the work that you take to do a waistband. So the entire back of my derriere is showing, and the shorts are drooping, and someone told me, oh, the, you need to fix that. And I was humiliated. But these challenges notwithstanding, I had friends and I had a really happy high school experience and I went to a friend's house one night and she was um, hosting something with her family that was called Young Life. And I, was, I didn't even know what a Protestant was at this time, much less the Bible, much less um, what this you know, Christian subculture looked like. All I knew was this house was filled, filled with light and filled with hope and acoustic guitar with songs I had never heard that were super beautiful and good snacks. And it just felt totally different. And I spent a lot of time in my childhood feeling really unworthy, not necessarily because we didn't have that much money, mostly because I wasn't worthy enough for my dad to stick around. And it wasn't that I got there and felt, oh, I'm so worthy at this gathering. I just felt that there was life and there was a glimpse that I could become worthy. That was it, just a glimpse. And I'll tell you, it was one night that I went to this. I went, not again, just that one night. So the memory just seared, seared into me. When I took my first job after college, I, um, as many do, did not make very much money, so I used to stuff bills that I couldn't pay at the top of a shoebox, at the top of my closet. It was just a mix of like denial and panic. And I, and I took this attitude with me through grad school, through law school, and into the mergers and acquisitions group of a large Manhattan law firm where I didn't need to have this attitude, but I, but I had it. So fast forward many years, and now I'm a successful lawyer, and I have a beautiful, beautiful family, and we live in New Canaan, Connecticut, which is very beautiful and safe, and I think if people looked at my life, and I've heard peers at work say this, like, oh, you've got it all. <laughs> but the, the stuff from childhood follows you wherever you go. So up until a few years back, I did not straighten out these attitudes about money in my heart. So I came to Generous Giving, and I met someone that I bet a lot of you know and probably love, like I do, Candace Blomley. I met Candace, and I immediately thought that she didn't like me because she was kind of looking down. I realized now she was praying when she met me. <laughs> but I, I took it as you know, like the unworthiness feeling that I cart with me everywhere. But she turned out to be 
um, a very close friend, and she said that God was calling her specifically to mentor me, and we became close. And she gave me, the first time we, not shockingly, she gave me the shirt that she was wearing because I said, oh, that's a beautiful shirt, and she gave it to me, and now I, I have it. And as I trusted her, because she made me trust her, she began to mentor us and mentor us in our finances. And she was someone I could turn every detail of the shoebox, the bills in the shoebox, the plastic lamps, the rusty swing set. I could tell her all these things and tell her about the panic I still felt about money. And she was incredible. She understood it. She followed along with us. And we could hand her like bad childhood memories and she handed back to us order, a plan, calm, money's a tool. So once we trusted her enough, I told her, okay, I have this dream. I want a house. But we, we had a house. We had a sweet house in New Canaan, but it was just on the top of a very large hill with a slope with no parking. So this wasn't the house that I was dreaming of. I wanted a certain kind of house. I was trying in my mind to recreate that house I went to that one time in high school that was so filled with life and hope and the good snacks and all the, the music. So I shared this dream with Candace and she said, this is real, I think God's in this. So we started looking, we started saving, we paid off all of our current debts and we found the perfect house. Three acres, beautiful, big pool, open, airy, lots of parking, place where kids will come. And so we bought it. To make this dream happen, we had to say no to other dreams. You guys know this. We have chosen to say no to country clubs, private schools, going out to dinner a lot, you know, the, the travel that all my peers do and don't understand why I don't do, we just say no to that. But we get to say a lot of yeses. We say yes to Walmart. <laughs> we say yes to Trader Joe's. We say yes to Costco. We had brunch, Mother's Day brunch at Costco the other year. It was classy. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have the picture to prove it. We have, um, we do potluck. We do things. Like, we just, we have to make the choices to make this other thing happen and to fund it. So we said yes to the dream that God was putting in our heart, and it feels really good, actually. I would say at the moment, we are very laser-focused. So we have a goal. Connor had a hard childhood, too. And this goal for us may have been born, I'm sure was born out of pain. We wanted to right the wrongs of feeling not secure and not safe in our childhood homes. The goal for us is this lighthouse, as we think of it, a house where the built for, designed for kids to just feel so um, worthy and, and included and encouraged. And what we really just want is a place where there is that one kid for that one night to feel worthy or even get a glimpse of feeling worthy. That's what we're in it for. So our giving now goes almost entirely to organizations designed to help youth. After giving each month, we set aside money to keep building this gathering space. I mean, it's a, it's a big kind of endeavor. But the idea is to tailor it for kids. And we've planted seeds at various churches and working with, with others in Connecticut. There's some amazing, amazing thing. There's fire going on in Connecticut right now, guys. Our kids are on board. We're wanting to be open for business. Our son's almost in middle school, and that's, that's the sweet spot for us is middle school and high school. So we're in a stage where we're really eager to just keep spending in accordance with our values and that's to see lives saved and to see kids develop this sweet, sweet relationship with Jesus, let go of perfectionism, let go of loneliness, and let go of whatever the things that happened to high school kids that happened to me, same things. But this freedom of transparency and the freedom of this mentorship relationship we have with someone who prays with us 
and says, like, good job there, tweak that, maybe not that, maybe this, good job. That is so freeing. And as our paychecks increase, we have rules around this all. It feels so safe and good and on, on point, like on, on, we're, we're on focus, on mission. So I think we're on the journey. We have not had this big crescendo of giving away a huge fortune, but we do know that we feel aligned with what we think God's doing to resurrect our own pain from our childhood, but just to, just to give glory to him through resurrection of what was sad he's turning into beauty, and I love that. I love that he gave me the sensitivity to be able to uh, understand when a kid's going to feel ashamed. Just, I'm grateful for it. So anyway, we have a focus that feels right, and um, we're going to keep walking because like, God keeps lighting like one brick at a time on the path, so we're grateful for that. That was so good. Uh, so my wife, Liz, is, a, is very smart. <clears throat> um, she's also a, a visionary, and we really are aligned on this, but she's really just a visionary uh, in all this. And um, I would love to say that I compliment these skills of hers, but that would assume that I brought something to the, the table myself. And uh, sometimes that's, it's doubtful. It's... Um, it reminds me sort of like if we were like on a basketball team together and we won and Liz scored like 62 points and I went around telling everybody like, oh yeah, we combined for 62 points for the win, so. <laughs> but I have, my, I have my stuff, you know, uh, I do stuff. Um, so, um, so I, you know, I, I write, and so I have my, obviously, my day job at NYU Stern School of Business as the dean of students there, but, but what I really um, love and I'm passionate about, I, I, I write, and so I contribute to this dream of helping the youth that we both really share uh, through the substance of the book, the content um, of the stuff that I, I write, but also, of course, the added income that that brings, and the, um, I was able to write this uh, memoir that was referenced that did that did very well, and that was able to provide for our family for a long time. It was able to um, support our ministry in Nepal, who we met in Kathmandu, um, working with trafficked children, reuniting with their families. So that was um, that memoir was all about that, and and that was able to support that ministry, which was amazing. But this next book that I wanted to write, I wanted it to be even bigger. Like if that could support that, like I was like, I'm going to make this bigger. I worked on it for. I think five years, and this was, um, this was a book that was going to support our vision for youth. It was going to be a book about youth, for youth, but most importantly, the income was going to, to generate that as well. And through this whole process, we were really preparing. I was really preparing. Every time I sat down to write for five years, I prayed and said, God, this is your book. I want this to be your book. Use this book for your glory, not my glory. Um, we uh, came to generous giving to prepare. We uh, went to jogs to prepare. We had tons of friends praying over this. We were excited. Our friends were excited. Our family was excited. People on social media were excited. Just everybody was like, when's it coming out? I'm like, oh, it's about to go to the publisher to, you know, to be sold, and we can't wait to see who it gets to. And this was like our life, right? And uh, in New Canaan, I was like, you know, the author in New Canaan. And um, <laughs> it was really cool. And then... Um, something happened. So the thing that happened was uh, the book was rejected. It was totally and completely rejected by everybody, by
by everybody. And the way the books work is you go out to a publishing house and this book was rejected by all seven major publishing houses, all seven. After working on it for five years and having this track record and it was rejected, which meant that it must be really bad. Uh, and that was, it's hard to describe the shame that comes along with that. It's hard to describe what it feels like to have everybody excited for you and asking, when's this gonna happen? And you out there saying like, this is gonna happen. If you've ever been uh, fired or anything like that where all of a sudden, you know, your identity is wrapped up in this and people are like, so how's that amazing new job? And you have to tell people, actually, they didn't want me, they fired me. It was, uh, it was brutal. It was um, so bad, especially because this was my identity in this town and in this community. I felt like I was invited to all the events because of who I was. I felt like I was invited to parties because who I was, and people were friends with me who, because who I was. And I felt like I had to, I desperately wanted to go around to everybody that I knew and just apologize for being this fraud, for saying, like, I'm so sorry that you thought that I was an interesting person to get to know and you made all these plans and in fact I'm not that person, I'm a pretend writer, I'm not actually a writer. And the hardest thing was thinking about how my family, Liz and the kids would see me. Um, that was the most brutal part, this is what the enemy does to us. The enemy was telling me like your wife is going to be so disappointed in you, your wife is going to be think of you as just such a failure and your kids are going to be so embarrassed and it was brutal. It was brutal. That shame, there's nothing like shame. There's nothing like it. And, uh, and it, things got so dark that um, I really couldn't figure out why I was still going through life. I couldn't figure out what was the point of me anymore. And that may sound dramatic, but if you, maybe some of you will understand that. Um, so this went on for weeks. And, uh, and then w one day I woke up and, you know, I would always write in my prayer journal in the morning because um, this was just sort of how I was getting through things. And a, a strange thing happened. I sat down in my prayer journal, and there was no darkness. It wasn't there anymore. And I was like, come on, all right, let's, you know. And, uh, and the darkness wasn't coming. And, um, and then I was like, did I dream all this? I'm like, no, the book still failed. Okay, so like, you know, went through and just, you know, went through my prayer journal and just saw grief, 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 and sadness and shame and realized, oh, I've gone through all the stages of grief. I've gone, it took me about six weeks, which I was very dark six weeks, but I've gone through all the, all the stages of, of sadness and grief and death. And today was the day that it ended. And today was the day that the Lord gave me. And that day was a day that I will never forget because I felt like, holy cow, like it was as if I watched the last board and nail on my house that I had built on sand sink into the sea and thought, okay, this house is never coming back and turned around and there was this mansion on a rock and Jesus at the door being like, a room for, room for one more, you know, like it felt like that. It felt like this is not a house that's ever going away and it felt like death and it felt like resurrection and God knows something about death and resurrection. And I went into Liz, she was getting ready at the mirror, and I said, I'm different as of today. I have a new identity, and I had to repent because Christ had not been the identity, but today he is. He's my identity. And I'm going to be, yeah, amen. 
And I said, I am going to be a, a Christian first. I'm also going to be a dad. I'm also going to be a husband. I'm also going to be a friend, a colleague, and I'm also going to be a writer. And I'm going to start writing again. And the joy was back in writing. The weight was lifted. It was not my identity anymore. And it was just, it was amazing. It was the resurrection. And everything changed from that point on. And if this was an um, identity testimony, that would kind of be the end, and we'd sit down and you could um, keep on eating. But this is a generosity testimony, and you know, there's always a twist in the generosity testimony. Am I right? So here it comes. <laughs> so this book was dead. It was dead. And then we have friends, Bruce and Cindy Halstead, who some of you may, uh, may know. And they were like, hey, can we read that dead uh, bad book of yours? And I was like, yeah. I didn't care. And uh, so they read it. And, um, and just to pause, just to sort of give you a little bit of an idea here. So the book is called The Hadley Academy for the Improbably Gifted. And it's based on this idea that every kid um, has in them this improbable gift, has this gift inside of them. And that gift is the thing that is most important to them. But it's their greatest strength and it's their greatest vulnerability. But for most kids, they're dormant. But the kids who feel it, who know that it's there, who know that it's there, and are brave enough to start discovering and realizing that it's actually there. They're the ones that get identified by this secret prep school, the Hadley Academy, to come to this remote island off the coast of Maine to get recruited to really use their gift, this incredible strength, to fight a darkness that the world doesn't know that is there. And even if it did, they just the world doesn't know that it's there and the world doesn't believe in it. And so this is sort of the premise of the book. So Cindy read this. She came back to me like two days later and she's like, this book is about spiritual warfare. And I was like, yeah, I wrote it like an allegory of spiritual warfare. She's like, this is great. And I'm like, okay, Cindy, thanks. And, uh, and then she was like, you have to send this to Christian publishers. And I was like, it's not a Christian book. There's no Jesus in it. And believe me, I've read a lot of Christian books. Like, you know, HarperCollins Christian owns, you know, Thomas Nelson and Zondervan. They write about Jesus. They write about, you know, Christianity. And I was like, it's not about, there's no Christian religion in this world that I've created here. And she's like, you will send this book to HarperCollins Christian Publishers, or I'm going to steal it from you, and I am going to send it to HarperCollins Christian Publishers. And I was like, I think that's a crime. Uh, first, it's like <laughs> felony extortion or something. So, but I did, and um, Thomas Nelson read it, and they loved it, and they're like, um, they're like, this book is about a savior, it's about spiritual warfare, this is the allegory. The associate publisher of that place said, um, this is the book that I've been praying for, this is the book that I want to breach into the secular world, and this is the book that I want it to be, this is the series that I want it to be. I know, I know. So I was like, sorry? And, um, but this is the thing, so they, they, you know, they got this book, and so um, outside and next to the amazing Sally Lloyd-Jones books out there is 250 copies of this book. And the reason it's out there is the advanced copy is out now, but it comes out in, uh, it only comes out in October, but this is how God works, right? Five months before, because people can pre-order it on Amazon, five months before it came out, it's already the number one new release in children's dystopian fiction. I know. I wish I could claim credit. And this is the thing, so it's like a Trojan horse of faith among the Hunger Games and Harry Potter and Maze Runner and everything else. So this is what God has done. And that's the amazing part of this. But the other twist, and I just want to kind of end with this, which is I always dreamed that I would be up here telling my story of amazing generosity. But God had a different idea. He wanted me to come up and tell the story of his generosity. And it wasn't until I experienced his generosity that I understood that generosity is preceded by 
something else, right? It's preceded by a death. It's preceded by a death of, uh, of an idol, and it's preceded by a death of a control, and it's preceded by the death of a, that spiritual hypochondria that we feel that we can't live without our possessions, and it's preceded by the death of an identity. And when I gave this book to Jesus, when I gave this book to the Lord every day, I was writing every day, this is your book, I was like sliding it through the slot. You know, I'm like, this is your book, and then I close the door. He's like, I don't need your book, dude. He's like, I want you. I want you. He's like, I didn't make Word documents in my image. Like, I want <laughs> you. I was only giving him the book. He's like, I got the book. Don't worry about the book. I want you. That was hard. That was a death and a resurrection. But God knows something about death, and God knows something about resurrection. That was the identity. I have friends, maybe you do too, who are scared to death to come to generous giving. Do you have those friends? Um, who are like, what's it about? Oh, it's about, you know, you know, have, you know like, be generous, give your money away. They're like, no thanks. And um, because they're afraid, I totally get it. We were as well, right, before the first time we came because we thought it's going to, uh, you know, we're going to be sort of like forced into sort of like feeling guilty and they feel like generosity is a death, right? Generosity is the death of your comfortable lifestyle and generosity is the death of your financial security and generosity is the death of your dreams of travel and everything else, and it's not. It's not. Generosity is freedom. Generosity is throwing the crutches away because you can walk, and generosity is ripping off the oxygen mask and realizing you can breathe, and generosity isn't the death. Generosity is the resurrection, and God knows something about death, and he knows something about resurrection, and we want to be part of the resurrection. Thank you. <laughs>